Hello there. This is Jason Dees, and this is the Think Through It podcast. Think Through It exists to help people think through the big questions of life and culture. On the Think Through It podcast, we'll be talking with friends, cultural influencers, and forward thinkers about the things that all of us need to be thinking about. Today, I am talking to a friend, cultural influencer, and forward thinker, Ryan West. Ryan works with the North American Mission Board, seeking to connect the American church with the great inequalities and injustices of the American city. His work is called Mercy Ministry and seeks to bring justice where there has been great injustice. I think we all have a lot to learn from Ryan about the problems and promise of the American city. So thank you for joining us today as we think through it. So we're talking today about the American city, and we've kind of titled this conversation, The Problems and Promise of the American City. So let's kind of frame a little bit what we're talking about here. I mean, obviously we come to this conversation with certain biases. Uh, We are white evangelical males. Yes, we are. are. And uh, we both grew up in the American South, and so that means something, Um, I think, Certainly, from our upbringing, we view the city, uh, you know, from a particular perspective, and so. But I, I don't think that our perspective is is uncommon for some folks that may be listening to this. So you grew up in a relatively small town, right? Tell yeah. me, tell me, kind of about your transition from like small town Georgia. Uh, just give us a quick snapshot of kind of where and you've lived and kind of what that's looked like. You've lived yeah. a lot of different kinds a lot of, of different, places. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, well. I mean, you know, one of my favorite songs is "Sitting on the Dock of the Bay," right? Yeah. Otis Redding, and one of the uh, greatest songs ever. Yeah, and so a little known fact: you left your home in Georgia. Otis, Otis and I actually grew up in the same same hometown. Oh man, isn't that interesting? So uh, I always say, well, we're the only two people that actually got out of that peanut farming community, <laughs> and uh, but moved out of that to a a, a little more of a. A less rural, I guess, a less rural context, and um, and one of my best friends growing up is actually a country music artist, you know, and I always joke, well, he and I are the only two that ever got out of that context. I mean, it was from extreme rural uh, and impoverished community to to a, a a little more of a suburban context, but but still, you know, south. Wait, so where was south that? Georgia, in Leesburg, Georgia. So wait, Leesburg is the less rural? Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that says a lot about where Otis uh, Redding uh, and I started out. But, oh, man. Uh, obviously and, a different time. To, and then time and then you move from there to Jackson, Tennessee. Yeah, Jackson to go to Union University. Which Jackson's, you know, mid-sized American town. Yeah, I mean, it's a... It's a 20,000? What is Jackson? I would, no, it's probably 85 Oh, okay. So that's a pretty... Yeah. yeah. And uh, so it's a, it's a, a small... I wouldn't call it a city, more like a large town. Yeah, a large town. A couple of universities in the city. County um, seat? I don't know. Yeah, I would assume so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but from there went to a a relatively uh, larger city. And and so really the last 20 years I've lived in, in a large urban to suburban urban context. Now you spent some time overseas. Yeah, yeah. My wife and I moved overseas. We wanted to be missionaries. Uh, We moved overseas, lived in one of the largest cities in the world. Um, At least 21 million lived there, but an estimated 7 to 8 million um, homeless people live in the city. It's larger than New York City, just to give us some perspective. Yeah, it's a major global city. 
Uh, and, and we were there, planted our lives there, thought we'd be there the rest of our lives. Um, and, uh, and that was quite a shock to, to go. I mean, even before that, we were living in a large U.S. context, uh, urban setting. But, but to go there, I mean, it's as big as it gets. Yeah. And, um, so tell me about that. I mean, and just compare that to urban United States I'm interested in that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, culturally, there are major differences. So you have, uh, you know, just living in an international context, um, heavy influence of Islam, heavy influence of Hinduism, uh, Far Eastern religions. I mean, you you just have a whole um, melting pot in that particular city. Um, So those cultural differences... um, you know, I, I fell in love with Asian food while we were there. Yeah. Uh, I, f- I figured out that Chinese food is not like American Chinese American food. American Chinese food is all other thing. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's a completely different Which, animal. You know, I love the American version. <clears throat> yeah, I do too. Yeah. Um, but, but anyway, you know, culturally it's, it's a difference. But at the end of the day, it's, it's very much the same as an American city in that you have humans who are sinful, broken people apart from Christ, uh, people coming to the city for a very particular reason. The reason why you have seven to eight million homeless people is they're coming there looking for opportunity. They're looking for work. Um, you know, people are just flocking to the city. And, and this is a global phenomenon. I mean, it's it's happening all over the yeah, world. Yeah. So different, but very, very much the so same. So I feel like you're starting to answer the next question I want to ask you, and that is just what is the city? You know, how do you talk about what that is? What is this phenomenon called, maybe particularly the American city, but even the global city? What is that? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I don't by any means claim to be a, an expert in urban development or, you know, urban planning or, or anything along those lines. But um, having researched this in my, my dissertation, um, 20 years of living in a large, uh, in urban context, and then my current work and what I do for the last 20 years, really, uh, I, I would really define it as, as basically people coming to a particular location looking for opportunity. So they may be looking for opportunity as far as education or the arts. You know, there's, all, there's a uh, when you talk about high art or things like that, you have that in an urban context compared to rural and even suburban um, jobs, obviously, um, relationships, various relationships. So people come and gather at something that would make up a city uh, looking for those for those opportunities. That, that's basically how I would define it. And so what dynamics does that create? I mean, I think I'll, I'll tell you where my head's in. I, I, I think I heard... Keller talking about this one time. Tim Keller, former pastor of Redeemer, uh, Presbyterian in New York City, and now running a ministry called City to City. Right. Um, but I think I said, you know, that I thought was such an interesting observation. You know, when you come to New York or when you go to Atlanta or you go to a city, all of a sudden you're not the best. Like, you probably could have been like the smartest guy. In your hometown. By, by far, yeah. There's probably not a lot of people in your hometown that have PhDs. But, like, there's a ton of people in Atlanta that have PhDs from much more prestigious uh, universities than Southern Seminary. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, as hard as that is to imagine. And so, uh, what, um, 
Yeah, I mean, how do you talk about that? I mean, well, I, I like the way that is. So it creates this like competition. It creates this cultural um, energy. It creates uh, a an incredible work ethic. Right. Like, what are some of the things that the city is creating? Yeah, I mean, it it um, you know, it's it, there was an urban urban planner in uh, in New York City back in early early twentieth century. And uh, named Jane Jacobs, and uh, and and she she's a one of those foundational cornerstone urban planners. Everyone looks to if you think through through this space and through these conversations, and um, and basically, you know what it what it creates the opportunity it creates it it creates this competition like you're talking about. It creates uh, this atmosphere where uh, people are pushing one another to strive towards better and the best. Uh, it just doesn't allow you know if you have a monopoly on anything. If I'm the smartest guy in my hometown, I'm the only guy with a PhD. It, it would be very easy just to sit back sure. and not continue to push myself, right? So being around other people who are just as gifted, just as qualified, and uh, well resourced as you are, it really does push you to strive for excellence. And and Jacobs, she talked about um, an interesting concept that. When people come and gather in a location, and we call that a city, it really allows you to have these unplanned networking opportunities through various social interactions that that leads to innovation and unforeseen opportunities. So it's just being around other people who are like you, and you uh, you know you you take your children to a little league baseball game, and you are just getting to know other parents on the team, and you begin to see that that man they're there's a lot of overlap between what you do and what I do, what you're interested in, what I'm interested in. You begin to naturally form relationships that are unplanned. They're very organic just through these social interactions, through these natural rhythms of life. And you begin to see intersection between, between other people, uh, innovative ideas, these unplanned opportunities yeah. that that you would really have to craft and think up abstractly, theoretically in other contexts, suburban rural contexts. Well, th- this thing, this just happens when you're, when you're in a city. And, and, and that does so much for worldview uh, because you, you are forced to collide with people that are inevitably different from you. Right. So you yeah. find a lot more people that are like you. Correct. Right? But then you also like are forced to collide with people that, are far different from you. You know, I kind of, I think of the old like Mark Twain quote, you know, travel is fatal to bigotry and racism. Like uh, that kind of also happens in the city. Like cities are fatal to those things because you, you know, it's hard to have stereotypes that you're and just hold those at a distance. Like you're meeting people you're meeting immigrants from other countries. You're meeting people uh, from totally different social uh, backgrounds than you. I guess you can certainly isolate yourself from those things in the city, but you also... It's very hard. It's hard to, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, you know, the, the worn-out phrase that everybody's using right now, the, the echo chamber. Yeah, know, yeah. I, I found that as I moved out of my hometown, even to Jackson, Tennessee, which is a small, small city, uh, I, I was exposed to things that I... You know, I always had assumptions. I, I had assumptions that if you don't have a job, it's because you're lazy. Like, you know, 
get up off your couch and go get a job kind of thing. Um, if you, you know, like women in the sex trade, if a, if a woman is in that, like how could you possibly... She's immoral. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And in and, and Calcutta, for example, I mean, it that was where that assumption fell by the wayside because we worked with women um, in, in the sex trade and realized that a lot of these uh, ladies were in that situation because their grandfather couldn't pay off an agricultural debt, you know, two, yeah. two generations they're actually doing ago. it to honor their parents. Like, well, they're doing it because that is the payment. Well, yeah, they're yeah. never going to pay off that debt. Right. Yeah. So that, that shattered that assumption. I mean, like you're saying, so coming to a, a city forces you to interact with people who are in situations that you didn't even know existed. And it, and it really does tear down that, that, uh, assumption, that which, you know. Which brings us to your work, what you're trying to do in the city. We've talked a lot. I think we've been talking about, I guess, some of the promise of the American city. Uh, you know, the pace, the ideas, the expansion of your mind. The, you know, it's fatal to, uh, to small-mindedness and bigotry and those kinds of things. Obviously, we've been hinting at some of the problems of the city, too. So t- tell us about how you're trying to intersect those two ideas and what you're actually spending your days doing. Yeah, I mean, it. you know, it's it's like anything. I mean, like buying a car, you know, when you're, um, when an advertisement takes a hold of you, you know, the promise is there. Man, the glittery Suburban with all its chrome package and all the leather seats and all this. But it, but then you get slapped by the $800 a month car yeah, payment yeah, or something yeah. like that, you know. Uh, it's the same with the city. There, there's a lot energy. of uh, there's a great chrome package that comes with the city, man. And we it's can all up- upgrade on the dealership hey, floor, right? Yeah, we can upgrade you uh, to the leather seats <laughs> and and all this TVs uh, popping down from oh, every man. corner of the car. But <laughs> the eight hundred dollar a month car payment uh. is that when humans interact with one another, when you have people flocking. To a city, uh, why does why is there such a, a high homeless population? Why are all of these problems coming together? Marches in the street. I mean, all these things result from humans interact. It's sinful humans interacting with one another. Um, you know, I, I typically you you asked a little bit about my work. I, if if we want to go nerd about this, we talk in the community development world about sectors of a society. There are various systems that have to be in place. There are various sectors like the, the government sector, uh, you know, recreation, the arts, right, yeah. education, these sectors that, that we have to form systems in order to make, a, make human a- interaction work well uh, to, actually, to actually work. Uh, the problem with that is that sinful human beings, when we come together, we'll form systems We'll form out those sectors to benefit us and people who are like us and our friends, the people we're naturally interacting with and we want to see thrive at the expense of other other people. So with the, glit, the, the glamour of all that a city offers, embedded in that is the naturally the $800 a month car payment. Right, yeah. uh, there's going to be, there are going to be problems that, that arise when humans come together and interact. So what I do is basically try to help churches um, and and other people outside that wouldn't claim to be Christians, but people in general who want to do something about those problems, well, what do we do about that? That's the question that we, we try to answer. And that's, that, that's my work. That's what I've been doing for 20 years now. And, and, and that is 
obedience to the great commandments of our Lord Jesus to love our neighbor? Like, what is what is your motivation? The I mean, I'm not saying I, I'm yeah. obviously in agreement with what you're doing, but like, how do you theologically say, okay, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing? Yeah, I mean, when when we're talking about when we're talking about the great commandments, I mean, we're talking about uh, Jesus telling us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And we're and love your neighbor as yourself, and um, and that is the foundation of of what I do. What I do is typically talked about as far as mercy ministry. People will talk about it um, as uh, servant evangelism or ministry evangelism. That's the Christian's take on. What it means to love your neighbor as yourself is to offer mercy to people who are hurting, human needs, these types of these types of things we see around us, and and so uh, at the center of all that, though, unless it's going to be baseless and just um, people who supposedly are compassionate and goodwilled uh, going about trying to address those needs with with no solutions that are going to be lasting. What, what is going to enable us to have lasting solutions? Well, it comes back to the second great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, right? Yeah. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so, yeah, I see, I see that as absolutely the and to foundation. me, that's a little different than showing mercy, if you, if you will. Like, and I'm not, you know, I don't think mercy ministry is a bad title, but I think the thing that, I think my eyes have been open to is this kind of, uh, you know, heroism of the white evangelical suburban guy that's going to go into the city and solve all the problems. And it creates, I think, pride. It creates distrust. It creates, it creates a whole different set of problems though. You know, I, on one side, I don't really know what to tell that guy because I think sometimes he wants to do some good things. So how do you how do you interact with that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, typically we I mean not we could go into the weeds for hours on this. Yeah. Right? But uh, but but typically it's because people are trying to provide band aid solutions to to deeper problems, and they view themselves as the solution, man, I can give them access yeah, to this. Yeah. I can solve their problems. And at the end of the day, the, the solution begins with introducing people to the first great commandment. It is a discipleship pathway that we really need to, to lay out. Introducing people to the Lord, to renewing of their minds according to Scripture. You are not the Savior. There is yeah. a Savior. You are not the Savior. So it begins with, that's the reason why this is the foundation to, to mercy. When we talk about as evangelicals, mercy ministry, it begins with, it, it is a disciple-making um, pathway. It's not just simply solving someone's economic issues and making them more like me as a you know yeah. middle-class or upper-class right, sure, American yeah. citizen. Uh, it's, it's not about... Uh, addressing the the you know systems that that tend to hold people down, such as redlining when it comes to housing um, and and home loans and things like that. Like we do need to address those things, but it but apart from discipleship, apart from making them disciples of Christ, uh, those kind of solutions will will be baseless. Yeah, and we talk about long term solutions. I mean, I think we're talking about eternal solutions, right? So solutions that won't just serve them for seventy or eighty years, 
but we'll serve them for the next million years. Yeah. You know, and well, it's it's an eternal solution like that, but also long term solutions in the sense that apart from apart from Christ, we may give them the opportunity today to address whatever circumstances is hurting them physically, hindering them physically, but apart from aligning themselves with the Lord, right. they're going to make other choices that are going to lead them We were designed down this path. to yeah. know and glorify God, right? right. Unless yeah. we do that, we're done. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. And what I was just saying is like, yeah, even like, because I, I, I see a lot of, you know, mercy ministry or whatever you want to call it, that is teaching maybe good economic principle. But, you know, just think about it. Like sometimes these things, these things in the name of Christianity are actually just giving people a different idol you know don't serve the idol of drunkenness for example there's a ministry in Birmingham we worked with and I felt like there was some lines that were a little blurry don't serve the idol of drunkenness serve the idol of education serve the idol of right. business success and and that's a, probably a better idol uh, that'll serve you better I mean you know obviously drunkenness may serve you for a night business and education may serve you for 50 years, 50 years yeah. but it's not going to ultimately serve you. Yeah. And so, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And that, and that's where, I mean, these things, the, the most frustrating, the reason why I went and did a PhD to study this more in depth is because you see fads all the time and you see these band-aid solutions, but what is the foundation of it? And it really does come back to a relationship with the Lord. Uh, we think about the great commission, and your pastor, you know this. I mean, Jesus sends out his, or he's commissioning his disciples to go out and teach them everything I've commanded you, right? I mean, justice, mercy ministry, all these things, if they're not tied to Scripture and to relating someone to the Lord rightly, reconciling them to Christ, um, to God through Christ, uh, it is it is baseless. What does he say in John fourteen? If you love me, you'll keep all my commandments. Right. right? Yeah. And if we're not doing that, we're providing economic solutions. We're providing educational solutions to these issues, which is great. But ultimately, it's like you're saying, it does lead to just a different idol. It may not be, you know, as repugnant as you know human trafficking. More socially acceptable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. In our in our context, it's more socially acceptable, but. At least ultimately, for now. Ultimately, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but ultimately, it, it is uh, far short of where we need to be. So not to nerd out on the podcast too much, but Ryan did his Ph.D. work in you know historical studies, you know church history, kind of like I did. And um, he focused on William Carey, uh, Baptist missionary. Uh, now, obviously, William Carey went in the name of the Great Commission to make disciples to do exactly Correct. what you're saying. But he did a lot of this kind of mercy ministry along the way. Oh, yeah. Can you give us just give us like one practical example? Like how's this happened in history? And then what can we learn from that? Well, a, a great example. I'll, I'll actually give you three. And you, you asked Overachiever. For, for one. Overachiever. And here you go with three. Yeah. But they, they, ended, um, they ended slavery. So we've heard of William Wilberforce and his work. Well, they were actually right there with him uh, doing this. So ending slavery throughout the British Empire came through these evangelicals, evangelical missionaries. Um, they ended sati, which is the burning of widows. So yeah. when a man would die, they would burn his, his widow on the funeral pyre. Uh, they, they brought that, made that illegal, um, virtually ending that throughout India. And then they did other things like uh, buying women out of prostitution, 
and microfinancing business startups uh, for for these women to help them. So, you know, you look at their their lives. Yes, they were obviously evangelizing and planting churches, but how are they doing doing that? It was through these social causes like this that that we that we know of. Yeah, I mean that's so. I mean, we when you look at the 18th century, imperialism was going on, all these things, but there was such a concern for human dignity, the human soul. Uh, and as you say, great commandments ministry. Right. So let's let's flip back to the promise of the American city. Here, you know, I am. I want you to advise me. I'm trying to plant a church in a city. Um, what is the promise? What is the hope of that? How do I help my people think through their role in what we're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, going back to the problem, uh, which then. The church, I think, has the unique solution to the problem. So the problem, the $800 a month car payment, uh, really for the American city is inequality um, and it's subpar solutions. So uh, inequality, uh, we, we see it all around us if we want to be honest uh, about about uh, these, these things in the American city. Um, you look at housing. I mean, a, a housing crisis right now in, in the five boroughs of New York City, it's getting to the point where the the working poor, I mean, people who are middle class and below spend anywhere between 50 to 70 percent of their uh, combined, this is two household incomes, household income, combined yeah. income just to pay their rent each month, yeah. right? And that's happening here it's here in, in Atlanta. I talk to people all the time that uh, they have great jobs. You know they're they're making in excess of sixty seventy thousand a year, and they cannot find a house to live in. Um, you know, so you look at, and that's just one thing. So housing inequality. What is the church to do about these things? Uh, there's all kinds of subpar solutions. I really do think it comes back to the church as the the entity with the the ultimate solution that we would be the voice of reason and work towards these ultimate and lasting solutions. Our job, there's a, a pastor friend of mine in Detroit named Chris Brooks. He wrote this book called Urban Apologetics. It sounds, you know, scary or whatever, but it's a great little, you know, 110, 120-page book, easy to read, and and it's written from the perspective of a minority uh, pastor. He's the dean of Moody um, there in Detroit, their campus. Uh, did a master's at Oxford uh, in economics. I mean, he's this amazing thinker, uh, but he really brings all this, uh, all these conversations together. What do we do about inequality? Well, the church is to work towards not uh, guaranteeing outcomes, uh, guaranteeing uh, that that we're going to redistribute wealth and all these these uh, subpar solutions, but the church is going to be a voice for the poor for those experiencing inequality and work towards guaranteeing uh, opportunity, right? Yeah. Opportunity in, in all sectors of society. That's that's ultimately what the church has to do. We could talk about specifics about what that means, but the church has to be a voice for the voice, voiceless and work with them to give them opportunities to to develop, to have access access to address the things that are hindering them. You know, and I think that's kind of a good note to end on because that is exactly, if you look at the ministry of Christ, it's exactly what our Lord has done. Correct. And yeah. it's the it's the, those who are experiencing inequality, I guess. It's those who are experiencing 
pain and suffering that Jesus so identifies with. Right. Uh, you know, I think of Matthew 25, um, when you did this to the least of these, you did this to me. Uh, and that's so powerful. It's not you honored me, you obeyed me, you did justice in my name. It's I so identify with the hurting. I so identify with the criminal. I so identify with the hungry. I so identify with the homeless that 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 as you serve them, you serve me. Yeah, and it's and it's. Uh, I mean, coming back around to something you were asking me about. I mean, if if this is all rooted in the great commandments and the great commission, uh, this isn't this isn't advocacy in the sense that we're going to go and change the laws and we're going to change the banking system. We're going to do these these things um, that sometimes get associated with social justice. When we talk about justice, we're talking about biblical justice. What is scripture? How does scripture define what is just, what is right? Right, yeah. To correct things that are wrong. That happens through us being in relationship with the people that we're we're trying to give opportunities to. This is a discipleship situation where if we're never actually going to care about these people enough to do anything other than feel bad and maybe tweet or you know, or maybe send up a, a generic prayer here and there. You know, it's it's if it's going to be more than that to where we actually advocate and give opportunity to people, it's got to be people that we know on a personal level that we're working with them to try to give them these opportunities. That's called discipleship. It's not just evangelizing them and teaching them spiritual disciplines. Discipleship, the gospel of Christ should affect all of life. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to try to help someone change their entire, all aspects of their lives unless I know them well. So that, again, goes against the Savior mentality and, and us treating right. people like projects, but we're actually treating them like people, restoring dignity, working with them, giving them these opportunities. That's called discipleship. So I guess a good question to think about as we close is for the listeners, like what relationship, what disciple-making relationship do you have with someone who's not like you. Yeah, yeah, and our jobs as uh, leaders in the church is just to... Help barter those, help create those. Yeah, help yeah. give people, our people, access to opportunities to enter inter relationships uh, like this. Well, it's been a great conversation. Ryan, thank you for your work. Thank you for all that you do. Um, so grateful for you, brother. Yeah, thanks and for your time. I've man. learned a lot That's from great. you today. Well, this has been the Think Through It podcast. And for Ryan West, I'm Jason Dees, encouraging you to think through it. Thank you.